Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 259, Ragnarok Publications, Grim Dark Character Arcs Panel. It's basically about the business of writing, and they tell you the stuff they wish that someone had told them when they got started as writers. You know, somebody can be a successful marketer and not necessarily provide a quality product. I'm going to let Moses go because he's frothing at the mouth to talk about this one. (laughs) (laughs) I like writing. I like reading. I like to immerse myself in books. That seems like a pretty good career choice. (laughs) Oh, you sound terrible. What happened? I'm just kidding. Oh, man. And now, constructed on a zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Public Sci-Fi Sci-Fi Hey folks, thanks for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward. Been such a busy week. Been working on the new website design. Um, very thankful to uh, Anastasia, the theme author who has been helping me. I uh, wanted to mention before we get into the panel, we have a few giveaways going on. We have five people on this panel from Ragnarok, and I will offer any ebook you choose from their catalog. I'd also like to mention that 47 North is sponsoring a giveaway that will also go through next Monday. They are giving five winners an ebook collection of the trilogy by Mark T. Barnes, The Garden of Stones, The Obsidian Heart, and The Pillars of Sand. The last book, The Pillars of Sand, comes out May 22nd. We will be having a post on Thursday called Making My Mark in a Crowded Genre by Mark T. Barnes. So be sure to check that out. In order to enter our giveaways, all you have to do is subscribe to the newsletter. In case you didn't win the Eternal Sky Trilogy giveaway by Elizabeth Bear, SF Signal is currently running a giveaway of the same thing. So go over to their website, sfsignal.com, and check it out. Uh, One last note to mention. (laughs) Tim Marquitz, poor guy. We give him a hard time. His microphone isn't the greatest, um, but he was invaluable to our conversation, so we had to have him on. I left in a few sound effects from his mic that sounds like he's part Cthulhu, part maybe researching a part by killing someone in his bathtub. We're not totally sure, but we've all had a big laugh about some of these side effects, so... I'm leaving it in for us, and hopefully uh, you understand that it was intentional. Normally I cut out as much as possible to give you guys a clean experience. Oh, I guess one one more thing I should mention. I did post my review for Those Poor Poor Bastards um, by Marquitz, Martin, and Soward, a Ragnarok Publications book. So head over to the website and check out that review. Highly recommended Dead West action. Thank you for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward. 
Today we have a panel with authors and the publishers of Ragnarok Publications. So here's what we'll do. We're going we're going to have a talk with all these authors about grimdark and demon hunting. Uh, I realized this after the fact that everyone here has written a book about fighting demons. And so I'm very excited to be able to have such a group with so many things in common. Um, so what we're going to do is I'm going to go around and have you introduce yourself and give us a pitch, kind of like the elevator pitch of one or two of your books. And we'll start with Mercedes. Excellent. Um, I'm Mercedes M. Yardley. Um, I write a whimsical horror. I write dark fantasy. Uh, my latest book that, that came out was my first novel. Actually, it's called Nameless, The Darkness Comes. And it's about a, a girl who's cursed with seeing demons. She doesn't want anything to do with demons. She's not interested in demons. Um, and she's lackadaisical about her fighting with them. She doesn't want to deal with them. But... Um, but she's she's forced to. There's that one. It's kind of a snarky book with some swagger to it. And I have my other book that came out is called uh, Apocalyptic Montessa and Nuclear Nuclear Lulu: A Tale of Atomic Love, and it's about two paranormal serial killers in love. So that's me. Okay, and Mercedes is one of my favorites. So those oh, those books thanks, are both uh, both highly highly recommended. I wish I could say I've read everyone here, but. Um, Yes, definitely check out Mercedes. Okay, we're going to... Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Let's go with Seth next. I'm Seth Skorkowski. I do uh, urban fantasy horror and sword and sorcery. Uh, my debut novel, Demoran, uh, is about a demon hunter who uses a holy revolver, and he ends up teaming up with a group of other demon hunters because there is a, a looming threat coming for them and destroying their holy weapons. Very cool. I'm, I'm excited to read that one, Seth. Sorry I haven't read it yet. Uh, <laughs> I like that all. But, <laughs> uh, watch out, it was Sam. very accusatory. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's my podcast, so he has to be nice. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Schooled. Uh, next is Tim Baker. Yes, I'm... Uh, Timothy Baker. I delve into some urban fantasy, a little horror. Uh, but I hate to throw a kink into your scheme here because I have not written Demon Hunter Sword, uh, not published, though I have a character hopefully coming out very soon that is a demon and a demon hunter. Uh, so I am working on that. Okay. Uh, my debut. Go ahead. I was just I, I haven't read Paths of the Dead yet, so zombies. Um... It's a spiritual battle, I'm assuming, right? Correct. It's uh, most zombie st uh, books happen in uh, urban, Christian-dominated countries, Europe and, and the Americas, and I wanted to take it and look at it through the eyes of uh, some hardcore Buddhists. And so, yeah, it it, uh, it is a partially a spiritual adventure. Okay, very cool. And sorry, I sort of cut you off and. It, Paths of the Dead is the name of your book, right, Tim? Correct. It's number one of the Hungry Ghost series, which I didn't expect to do. It was just a single uh, book, but uh, Jim kind of, I mean, Joe kind of finagled me into a series. <laughs> and here I am now <laughs> trying to think up what, what happens next. <laughs> 
kind of yeah, originally know that actually it was uh originally it was called hungry ghosts and uh right we came up with path of the dead later in fact and we thought that hungry ghosts would be more fitting for the series well those are both <laughs> both cool names so that works okay uh and we'll next we'll go to joe hey there i'm joe martin i write under jm martin and um one of the co-writers of the Dead West series, which we've had, we have two of them out right now: those poor, poor bastards, and the Ten Thousand Things. Um, and what it's about is, uh, it's sort of grimdark, I guess. Um, it's also a little bit of uh, Zompoc, but what we've marketed, I, sh- I guess I should say Zompocalypse. So for people who are unfamiliar with what Zompoc is, I thought you said Zompoc. And uh, we've, <laughs> I thought you said yeah, Zompoc. Yeah, yeah, Zompoc, like I don't know. Z- zombie pop. Like we all love zombie pop. Anyway, sorry. Go so on. tasty. <laughs> Go on, Joe. Um. So, yeah. So, what we've done is we we sort of market the Dead West series as a as a weird Western supernatural horror because uh, those zombies are part of the backdrop. We also have, um, like you said, there are demons um, that are at play. And have impact on the storyline. And the main character is female. Uh, her name is Nina Weaver. And uh, she is half Indian. Her mother was a Shoshone. And her father uh, is what uh, some of the Indians would call Wasichu. Which is uh, he's white white man. And so her father Lincoln is with her in the story as it begins. And they've been pretty much living in the wild. And... They come rolling into a town called uh, Coburn Station, which is now called Truckee, California, uh, to do some trading. And then that's when all hell breaks loose. Just uh, first we start out with, well, I'm not going to do any spoilers. Just We'll just say that uh, the action begins pretty quick and it's continued through two books now. Yeah, I just read that uh, yesterday in a day and uh, am very, very impressed. I I didn't know what to think because I'm not really into the weird westerns yet, but um, great action. Uh, you guys are very good at writing action, so that was good. Um, and I'm excited to read the next Thanks. book. So you read the first one, you said? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, okay. I, I'm definitely interested to see what you think about the second book. Um, I'm even. I'm a lot more proud of that. Read the Ten Thousand Things and let me know what you think. Well, I just picked up uh, Jeff Salyard's Veil of the Deserters and realized that it oh yeah yeah that it's um, six thousand pages long. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that guy is such a wordy sob. Yeah, I think what did he say? It's like one hundred and forty or one hundred and fifty thousand words. <laughs> that selfish jerk. He originally intended it. Yeah, <laughs> what a jerk. Hate that guy. Hey, Tim's back. So, Joe, what did you guys step up in the second book? To make it better. Well, what we did is before in the first book, you know, having read it, we sort of hold them up. We kind of had a little bit of a, a vision of, uh, you know, this, the the Alamo, that last stand scene. And um, what we do is in book two, it's transitioning over now to where they're getting a grasp or a handle of on what's causing this outbreak. They've learned who their enemy is and they're traveling cross country and they become uh, more proactive, I guess, especially Nina. She starts to really sort of figure herself out a little bit more and find – she's trying to find more of a balance between her two 
her white self and her Indian self because she's got a very uh, – we could say that she has a lack of faith in the beginning of the book. And so she's finding faith but not – you know, um, she's finding the faith of her people and bonding with uh, the spirit of the people and the spirit of the land. And um, she has uh, – she can kind of go into this spirit state where she converses with her Bohagande and gain wisdom from him, from his tutelage. Does that answer the question at all? Yeah. yeah. Co- oh, okay. A couple of questions based on that. What kind of struggle was it for you to incorporate a cost to the spiritual magic system that you have? That's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think of it because, I mean, that's sort of like are you, you're sort of taking it in terms of like a, a gaming system. Is that what you're saying? Or just a yeah, – Well, just because, I mean, for me – clarify a little this idea of a, a faith-based magic it can almost be as easy as does the character believe or not. And so it, I don't want it to become convenient when I'm writing it. So I'm curious what kind of struggle you were with making it not just as simple as, well, my character believes now, and so they're going to have enough power to defeat the bad guy. It's kind of an interesting thing, actually, because she's a natural-born skeptic, and she – really doesn't believe but when you know of course we're working in a, in a supernatural environment so when we start having these things happen it's kind of a jolt to her belief system first she witnesses as you've read in the first book our priest character the missionary uh he uh, is able to work magic that she perceives as miracles and even then, she's not 100% sold. She's like, well, what is going on here? Kind of a state of confusion, more or less, and wondering if someone's trying to just get something over on her almost. Um, but she has another companion who is a uh, Nez Perce Indian named Red Thunder who sort of acts as a guide as well or a connection to her Indian self. And uh, I believe that having... Uh, Witness the things that Father Matthias can do and then um, some of the guidance from Red Thunder. She begrudgingly opens herself up to the possibility of things, and that's when it begins to sort of snowball for her. And uh, even when she's convening with the Bohagande, I think there's a part of her that's holding back. And in the second book, she sort of goes through this initiation, this acceptance, and um, when she does that, become she sort of inherits more power so in that second book you get to witness a little bit of the power that she inherits and how she's able to wield it uh, against you know her enemies and and the uh, zombies which we call deadens uh, in that you know western vernacular is the is the conflict then to try and cause doubt is that like one of the main sources of conflict it is and Doubt in one, yeah, doubt in oneself more than I guess a doubt in a faith system because the main enemy, uh, the the antagonist, is um, a spiritual being as well. Um, in a certain sense, he's amassed a lot of power, and he can basically wield that power um, not just in the material world but in in another world. And part of what his threat is is to bring the characters uh, into his thrall in, in that world of, of the spirit, more or less than the flesh, more so than the flesh, I should say. Okay. Uh, Tim, how does the 
incorporation of Buddhism into a zombie story um, distinguish itself, and more so with your book? Well, it's all about point of view. There's no real uh, magic in Path of the Dead, but there are things that happen that seem supernatural to the characters because it's it's all based in Tibetan Buddhism in which they have tons of gods and it is mixed in with the indigenous uh, religion of the area, which is sort of animistic. You know, everything has spirits. So it, it, it mostly comes across that, and there's a big nature theme within it with animals interacting with the dead and the people. But the characters, particularly my two protagonists, a, a monk and a small boy, they every time they see something like this, it seems like a portent or something like that. I didn't want to put, I didn't want to create a fantasy thing. I wanted it to uh, be set in real life, sort of a, a science-based. But according to their view, much like a Christian would view it as, you know, the end times and demons and such, uh, they see it as uh, very specific uh, spirits of the land and the strength of, well, it happens in a holy mountain, so the mountain has its own spirit too. It's all, it's all in their point of view. Okay. We'll get more to Paths of the Dead as we get to more questions. Uh, Seth, what's the cost system for your magic? Well, um, the most of the magic in uh, my story is with the weapons themselves. And uh, each of the hunters is uh, bonded to a holy weapon. And each weapon has a kind of its own personality. And the characters will debate if they're alive or not deep down they all believe that they are um, each uh, each weapon has a gift uh, or a, a single power that it can give to the person it uses it uh, the main character is uh, he uses a, a pistol that was made from a broken sword and every aspect of it is ceremonial he has to mold the bullets out of a specific mold and reload them in the these specific shells that came from pieces of the original sword and he has to put some of his own blood into the gunpowder so he only has 18 bullets and so he has to protect those just as much as the gun so it's very it's mostly ceremonial throughout my story then the main character's added magic is since he is possessed with some sort of entity uh, he can uh, sense where demons are by mixing his blood with water it creates a compass of sorts that points toward them and he can speak any language but the throwback is no one trusts him because they hunt demons and he's obviously possessed so he is uh, an outcast even among his own kind because they they think he might turn on them at any moment very cool definitely cool yeah mercedes i'm going to go to the grim dark aspect of our conversation and we're going to talk about how grimdark character arcs work and as we get to that uh i'll allow you to kind of incorporate your magic system with the the character arc with your character is that okay sure okay sure definitely let's um is tim still with us marquitz yes i am okay so tim marquitz is an established anthology editor and the the co-head of Ragnarok Publications, and he has a new anthology coming out uh, through Angelic Night Press called Grimdark Grim Noir. And so I wanted him to come on and kind of 
discuss with us what he's looking for in Grimdark and almost selfishly for me because I don't really know this genre very well and so I'm curious about how character arcs work and that sort of thing. Uh, so Tim, please introduce us to this anthology. Well, the, the funniest part there is that you said selfishly because that is a huge, huge part of the, uh, the grim, dark mentality. The, uh, the story arcs are way more about the character, the personality of, uh, of the character than they are necessarily the world. There's a bleakness and a selfishness to the characters who go out of their way to satisfy themselves more so than say necessarily a, a storyline or a plot device. The idea is really that to bring a bleakness into the, into the character's perspective, not just into the world, but into their perspective, how they see things. You know, it's, you're looking at the anti-heroes, um, not quite villains, you know what I mean? They don't, they don't go out of their way to, uh, to be criminals, although that, that is part of it. The reality is that the, the selfishness drives them to be more self-absorbed in the sense of everything they do, every decision they make, really. Let's get the details out for this anthology before we get into kind of the discussion on that. So what's like the, the end due date and um, size of the story, that sort of thing? Absolutely. As you said, it's due Angelic Night Press. Um, Basically, September 15th is the deadline for stories. We're looking at a uh, November release. Uh, myself and Tyson Maurum, who is, who is the co-editor, he's actually the, the lead editor in this case. We're looking for about 12 to 15 stories, anywhere between you know, three to 5,000 words, give or take. I mean, obviously, story will trump any, any word count requirement that we put on there. You know, offhand, I don't have the, the contact email, unfortunately. I'll have to hunt that down. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. Let's have Mercedes introduce her character before we get too far. Um, Mercedes, would you consider your your character for Nameless uh, selfish, uh, fitting in the grimdark aspect? You know, I hate to say that she's selfish, but I think that she kind of is. Um, my character's name is, is Luna, the girl that sees demons, and she... She's so, the only people she really seems to care about are her brother and her niece, and she goes out of her way for them. But yeah, I mean, she's uh, not kind to people. She has a chip on her shoulder. She, I, I would say that she fits that. Yes. I like her, but you know, she, uh, yeah, she's pretty, she's a little self-absorbed. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, and I had never really thought about selfishness as a key uh, ingredient into having a grimdark character. Um, are there any other ingredients uh, that could stand out, Tim? I think a lot of it comes down to perhaps a, a lack of compassion or um, maybe just uh, an apathetic worldview. You know, the people are in this mentality, they probably probably value others you know the flip side of them valuing themselves too much is that they value others as less you know they don't they don't see people necessarily as people they're their means to an end that's the same with with the world you know, the idea is that you know these could be corporate ceos you know you have that mentality where they where they step out and and everything is fair game as long as they get what they want out of the end of it 
They don't care if they raise cities or, or pollute anything. The, the point is to ultimately satisfy their own self-interest. Uh, listening to this, it, it really made me put, came to mind a, a very grim, dark character, though not in fantasy, the, the man with no name and a fistful of dollars. He really popped oh, yeah. out of my head. He, the selfish guy who's very opportunistic and very much about the cash. Absolutely, absolutely. I think also one of the ingredients of Grimdark sort of touching on both of what both you guys said is that uh, their method, the, the character's method in Grimdark is almost always brutal. And they have a willingness to do violence and they will not hold back from doing violence if they if that's the way they need to deal with a situation and a lot of times it's it might even be violence first that's their first their initial gut reaction i don't don't even think it's violence i think it's you know of course it does it is violence but um i think it's in everything they do they're willing to do anything you know to cross any lines that most normal people would think were were taboo to these people it's not whether it's violence or theft or or whatever they need to do to to, to reach their goal a means to an end absolutely so so i'm just seeing some very strong characters that are exceptionally motivated i don't right. see the negativity that i feel that perhaps i should be seeing <laughs> about these characters i'm like go team that's because it's your no. personality <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> way, to, way to out yourself, Sadie. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> By my books, or I'll kill you. I'll kill you all. You're, no, I, you're I so interesting, grimdark. Though. What? Oh, I said you're so grimdark. New, that's my new nickname. I am so grimdark. Lady grimdark. But, but I feel like um, we're supposed to be thinking less of these characters, and I, I don't. Oh, I think that's why think the that's, genre is so popular. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the idea is that the, the bad boys are still looked at as being a step beyond everything, that, that, that adventure and that excitement that comes with these grimdark characters. Or, you know, the 50s, the, the, the guy on the motorcycle and the, and the black leather jacket. This is just that magnified to meet the current modern moral standards. Now you're making fun of my motorcycle. <laughs> I'm just jealous. I, 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 think, <laughs> I think we love these characters so much, especially as writers when we're writing them, because we actually know more about them than everybody else. We're giving them the surface of just what they do and say. But, you know, they're anti-heroes. So there's something good inside them somewhere. And we know that. And it's there. We'll, we'll let it leak out every once in a while. I think that's what they love them. That is a great Basically, point. yeah, that's yeah, and and writers know this because we're all grim, dark inside. Mm-hmm. So, do you guys actively try to show something in the beginning of your story that will hint to there being something good in the character? In uh, in mine and Demoran, my character is a twelve-year-old boy who wakes up and finds monsters eating his whole family. That jerk. And, oh. and then he's mortally wounded <laughs> and, and saved by some you know, mysterious stranger that's holding a gun on him because he doesn't trust him. So the, the sympathy for my character isn't 
his morals. It's his innocence and the fact that he is he's a victim of something nightmarish. And then you cut to present day and you see that he has adopted this uh, kind of a monster hunting lifestyle where he has no friends, he has no family, he's just a man and he's in love with a gun that can't talk to him. I gotta read that. That's some serious unrequited love. <laughs> the um, book's moving on hotcakes for Ragnarok. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw I saw how well it's selling. That's fantastic. I think in, in, in my case, it's told from first-person point of view, so you're inside of Luna's head. And I think that kind of helps because you see what she's thinking and, and her thought processes are very uh, sporadic and scattered and she kind of jumps from one thing to the other. And I think that kind of, I didn't deliberately set out to, okay, I'm going to now do something synthetic so you like her. I just kind of let herself come through. And I find, I think she's likable when you see what she's worried about, what she thinks about. She's just very um, protective of herself and her family and their um father she sees demons of course um nobody in her family believes her except her father who used to see demons before he he killed himself so there's this stigma of you know uh, suicide and all these things and, and mental illness in the family and so she's very i think it's explained why she is like she is she, she just wants to protect herself and her family and that's all so there wasn't a, a i'm going to set up a scene where you see this but it's it just kind of bled through for her. Okay. Uh, Baker? Yes. How, how do you build a... Answer the question. <laughs> how do you build something? <laughs> okay, that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I forgot it too. <laughs> yeah, what's it's like the question? like a firing squad. <laughs> Write it down on your hand, gentlemen. <laughs> the, the, the question is, how do you build sympathy for... And, and I don't even know, would you consider your story to have an anti-hero? And if so, how do you build... Well, in either way, how do you build sympathy for your main character? Well, let me say this. In Pass of the Dead, no, I don't have an anti-hero, but uh, part of the irony here is when I looked at Tim's anthology thing about Grimdark, Grimmore, how do you pronounce that? Uh, I just locked on to the I thought, hey, that's a cool title. I didn't actually know it was a thing. And hopefully I wrote a story uh, worthy of that. So, but looking on it, yes, it is a grimdark character. And what I used, what I used to make him, I guess you would say likable is his sense of humor and his sort of lackadaisical attitude toward extreme events. Uh, don't we all wish we were that way, you know, uh, in dangerous situations to be able to smart off and, and uh, be calm in a, in a terrible situation. So I'm developing on that, and uh, that's how I make him kind of fun. That's why I like him, because he's just fun. Is that it for your story, your short story? Yeah, it's for a short story I, I submitted oh. to uh, Tim in the Grimdark anthology. Oh, okay. Um, one of the things I was going to point out in Path of the Dead is I think you may have a bit of an anti-hero in The Chinese Soldier. True enough, yeah. Uh, and it, I put him in there... Uh, because of the history of Tibet, uh, its annexation by China and uh, its constant conflict, and yeah, true enough, he he sort of is. He he's he may be Chinese, totally skeptical, not believing any of this bull that the the monks are throwing around, but he still cares for people and does his job uh, to the point that he you know his duty calls. Uh, 
So true enough, yeah, he is a bit of an anti-hero, though he doesn't rise to a, the level of the, the protagonist. Right. He's a member, of course, of the People's Liberation Army, which occupies Tibet now, which just adds a little more political conflict within it, which I'll probably expand on in later stories. Yeah, I liked that. I was going to ask Marquitz, um, what is the name? You've got – I see all these books that have similar covers on them, um, but I'm not sure what the name of the series is. The Demon Squad, is that right? Demon Squad, yeah, that's correct. How many books have you written in that series? I've written six along with um, a novella and, and quite a few short stories. I'm in the process of writing book seven right now. I'm curious how how you built a character that was – would you consider him an anti-hero? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. He's, he's like the epitome of it. Okay. Um, so I'm curious how you, how you built him into a, a sympathetic or at least an entertaining enough anti-hero – and how that kind of um, character arc can spread over that many books. Uh, well, the, the, the beauty of this is, is there's a ton of, of room for, for growth for the character. Um, he's the nephew of the devil. He's this spoiled little uh, brat who's been given everything he's ever wanted over the course of his life. Um, and, and, and he's all of a sudden... He's put in a situation where God and the devil up and disappear from the world. Free will is given to everyone. And all of a sudden, he's in a position where, where he's basically the last stand against this, this chaos. He's, he's a very selfish character. He's very self-motivated. He's essentially a, uh, a 15-year-old boy in a 500-year-old man's body. He thinks like that. He's very immature. He's very juvenile, um, but like Mercedes, part of part of his charm is his humor. You know, he's that to quote uh, Maja from uh, Nocturnal Library. Basically, he's that he's that creepy old uncle. You love seeing him at Christmas. <laughs> you just don't want to go in the back room with him alone. You know. <laughs> you know, he's he's fun to be around. He's fun to hang out with and party with. You know, just don't count on him when it comes time to pay the rent. Was it challenging for you to make it so that? You didn't uh, overdo any character growth in the first book? You know, to be honest, not really. In the first book, I, I think I overdid a, a few aspects of his personality in the sense that he's, he's pretty much a pervert. You know what I mean? And, and, and I think maybe I, the, the humor was, was very shotgun blasted across the book. It wasn't very rigid or very, very focused. Um, so I think that aspect came out way more than I intended it to. So it, it kind of overshadowed any real growth, you know, but he's, he's very much an underdog and he's very much a punching bag. He's, he's the guy who's going to go out and he's going to try his hardest to do whatever he's got to do, but you know, at his pace and, you know, as he wants to do it, you know, but in the first book, he really kind of got dragged along more so than, than he does later in the series where he starts to grow up and he starts to take, you know, a little bit more responsibility for his actions and the things he's involved in. That brings to mind a question and relates to what uh, Joe said about, is it Nina? That's the main character in Poor Poor yeah. Bastards. Nina, yeah, Nina Nina being more, more passive. One of my... <laughs> One of my novels that I wrote, an editor was talking about how my my character wasn't proactive enough. And I'm not sure what you guys think about 
a character being that it is it acceptable for them to be passive in the first book as they're sort of learning and growing and how do you I guess make sure that that's still entertaining when most people seem to think that a, a more active character is more interesting to read about. Well, I think in that particular case that you really need um, a strong supporting cast. It, it, you can't just put it on the author themselves the entire, or I'm sorry, the, the main character themselves the entire time. You really need to have people um, give that main character the opportunity to grow and advance. We put a lot of characters in the Dead West series, and I think you kind of almost have to have an ensemble cast when you're dealing with a zombie series like The Walking Dead or um, something similar. Because you got to have fodder for one, but you also, it's really neat to kind of be able to juggle a lot of strong personalities in a, in a small setting. And uh, so Nina is d- definitely sort of passive, but she's, she's, um, she's sort of just getting the lay of the land, so to speak, figuring out who's who and what's what. Once she kind of gets a, her grip on the personalities that she's surrounded by, she becomes a lot more comfortable um, with being more active in the second book. Okay. Baker, did you have something I was to say? Just, yeah, I was just going to add that if you're using a, a character who's uh, passive in the first book, then they're uh, only passive uh, in the physical world, but the, there still has to be a, a conflict, and that conflict has to be a inner interior uh, psychological conflict the thing in which do I act or do I not uh, not acting has, has always worked for me but you, you hear what I'm saying there's got to be something within them they can't be totally passive otherwise they're not interesting at all mm-hmm. mm. over and out okay <laughs> <laughs> you're so wise I just wanted to hear more <laughs> I think uh, Ward just likes to leave in the pauses for to make it easier to edit. Is that true? Uh, well, I, I was leaving in the pause for someone to speak if they if they wanted to before I moved on, but uh, but no one did. So oh, that's okay. O- that's okay. Did uh, Seth or Mercedes have anything to add to that as far as their book went? I honestly I can't remember what the question is anymore. Oh, someone that was talking about writing it on their hand. Apparently, yeah, check your hand. <laughs> I know I'm so ashamed. I'm just I'm just listening to my daughter in the other room and hoping you can't hear her. I was I was distracted. <laughs> so no, we can't hear. So so I'll go. Seth, if you have a, a guy that has a holy weapon, I imagine he's not very passive. No. Uh, and how how they work in, in the story is the holy weapon will bond with the person. You know, the the bond is, uh, you know, it's they will feel more love for this weapon than they feel for their spouse than they feel for their child. This this is you know like a a child and a spouse rolled into one. It's the most important thing in their life. And um, the the principal hero, he he has you know he's always been alone. So the only thing for him is this weapon and now that he is in a group of people and he's kind of the outcast he has he does take a a bit of a a passive role in the sense that no one will trust him to do too much uh, until he's able to to prove himself 
And even then, half of them still don't trust him to do anything very important. Uh, so to to keep him interesting, it's it's kind of for him. It's the struggle of no one trusts me, and then he starts questioning if he trusts himself. Overall, I think that if you're going to have a passive character, it needs to partially be the, the the hero's journey, as far as the person taken out of a normal life and thrust into an unusual one. In this story, all of them have an unusual life, so they can't really be passive in that sense. Do you guys see much of a difference between passive and reactive? Are you guys kind of equating the two ideas, or is there a difference? Because I've, I've heard about reactive being bad and proactive being good, so I'm not sure if we're talking about the same thing. We essentially are talking about the same thing. Uh, reactive, basically coming into the world and, and, and dealing with whatever's there. Um, without necessarily having the tools to to deal with it properly, they're learning as they go along. Um, I, I, honestly, I, I believe we are pretty much equating the two terms to be the same thing. So, pretty much, I mean, it sounds like it's okay then to start off reactive um, as long as you progress into proactive by the end. I would I, think I so. Think go ahead. I would agree with that. Especially if there is going to be that that journey, you know, if there is going to be, because think about anything that you start new, you 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 don't know what you're doing, you know, you start something new and you are going to react. You're not usually going to be proactive until you get your feet under you. And I think that with all of our books, there's such extreme scenarios that our characters are going to spend some time being like, well, I don't know what's going on for a minute, and I think that's okay as long as it doesn't carry through the entire series. I mean, there are times I've read a couple of books where I just want to throttle the main character because they didn't learn anything. <laughs> and I'm like, take charge of your fate! You know, do something. So as long as there's that change. If there isn't, just kill them. <laughs> there, that, that is absolutely the point. Absolutely the point yeah. that it isn't it isn't a constant reactive state. It's them getting their feet under them. It's them figuring out what's going on and figuring out what they can do to be more active. Um, but yeah, no, if they stay passive or if they stay reactive the entire book or the entire series, it gets old very quickly. It does. Like the, you know, I think too, to there could be a punching bag. Mm -hmm. There could be, um, there's maybe a, the perception too. You guys can tell me what you think of this, but there seems to be more of a stigma put on the word passive where passive is sort of perceived as being weak. Whereas, reactive isn't a passive character if you hit a passive character they may cower if you hit a reactive character then you might expect to be getting hit back what do you guys think of that well sure they can go from passive into this into the next step in their evolution which is reactive and then as uh, it's usually some event something emotional that that really switches their mind whether someone they love is threatened or uh, an enlightenment, a realization in which they start deciding, I need to get ahead of this stuff. In which, right. thus, the term proactive. That's their evolution exactly. as a character. And that shows their intelligence, their emotional intelligence. Good point. I like that. Getting ahead of stuff. That's, that's the basis of being proactive. You're right. Right. Reactive is, is behind, is always behind. Uh, proactive is Correct. Right ahead. But that's interesting. 
because it's semantics. I think that a passive character and a reactive character are fairly, fairly similar. You know, I, I think, like you said, you might expect to be hit back, whatnot, from someone that's reactive. But I think it's a fairly similar character trait. They're not, you know, causing anything. They're just kind of, whoa, what's going on and having it happen to them. But I think it's funny that that's considered, it is considered weak. And mm-hmm. we're not mm-hmm. allowed to have weak characters. I think that um, that's interesting that we're not allowed to have. Yeah, it's hard to have sympathy for a weak character in a book. Yeah. But how many people do you know in life that are weak people and you still love and treasure them, but that's not allowed in a character? Yeah, it's always a balance. That's why they read because they want to see that. They they don't want to think of everybody being these these little um, milquetoast characters that, that get run over all the time. Like in reality, we like to read about active characters, not passive characters. Well, yeah, because, because we're we living put our... out fantasies, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. The reality yep. is, though, that people and, and characters are are all of those traits together. Otherwise, they're one extreme or the other. They have to be a mixture. They have to have some part passive, some part active. Otherwise, they're you know over they're the co- top, one way right, or the other. Compulsory. Caricatures, yeah. It becomes almost more of a like an obsessed character, that extreme. Which are interesting attitude. too. Yeah, I just I think it's interesting because when you're you're discussing the the grim dark genre, which I'm newly familiar with, um, it tends to it tends to be more realistic, I think, than most of these oh, yeah. books where it's like you are chosen, blah, blah, blah. and yet there's still the stigma to putting in. We want it realistic, but we don't want it that realistic. I just find it interesting what people accept and what people don't accept. Um, and a lot of my characters, and Tim, you're familiar with my work, a lot of my characters do have, uh, my, my stories have characters in distress. You know, it's help, I'm, you know, I've been kidnapped, help, whatever. And there are all these um, interesting kind of weak characters that are allowed to be weak sometimes. And, you know, of course, hopefully there's there's a change or whatnot. But I get a lot of flack because people don't want to hear about, you know, they want someone kicking the door in with their boots, which is Luna. You know, that's Luna. She kicks the door in, um, but people don't, you know, some people don't find her sympathetic. Some people really don't like her and found her selfish, you know, and don't like that aggressiveness. It's interesting to have these characters that have to be this and this and this and this, but not that, not that, but a little bit of this. Because you need that weakness to make them be sympathetic. You don't want a character that's totally armored all the time. You need to have some of that bleed through. I just, I just am interested in what people choose to kind of um, identify with and not. Just feeding on what you were saying, um, it puts me in the mind that one reason why Apocalyptic Montessa and Nuclear Lulu became popular and, uh, you know, a lot of the reviews said, uh, I can't, you know, the main characters are serial killers, yet I surprise myself by sympathizing with them, which I think attests to what we're talking about, that you really were deft in the way you authored that particular work because you were able to take i mean face it lou is he's not just grimdark he's a bad guy he's a villain he's a serial killer um and yet you still get the reader to be sympathetic for him through montessa because she does enter the story downtrodden and passive but 
almost like a, a character that we can identify with in a certain way. Not that, not that we're all strippers or they get, you know, are beaten by our boyfriends, but just, just Joe. people, people, have, well, yeah, speak for yourself. Uh, people, people are downtrodden across the board. So we sort of gain that sympathy for her character and then through her, uh, the relationship that develops with Lou, he goes from uh, from villain to anti-hero in a way, at least for her. So that makes me think, Kenan. Well, you look, at, you see it actually in in some of these books, like Mark Lawrence's book or Joe Abercrombie, who write grimdark. Is the anti-hero isn't a universal anti-hero. It's a lot of it depends on perception. He's definitely a villain to his enemies. He's an anti-hero, maybe to uh, to others, where through his brutal methods, the outcome is positive for them in some way. Um, and then they're just a straight hero to others. Usually, it's that's, someone that's they're the protecting. That's the selfish angle. Right. When it comes back to it, is it, it's me and mine. So to that to that circle of people. You know, that character may be the greatest thing ever. However, to those outside of that circle where he shows none of that depth, where, where he or she goes out of their way to avoid showing any character, you know, feelings or emotion or anything beyond what they normally show, that person has a completely different perception of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we like complex characters, so you know you may have some anti-heroes who are an anti-hero to the core, and then others just wear it as a cloak or armor, so to speak. Though those that are theirs, their their selfish circle, know the real person inside. Mercedes, I don't think that you gave a plot synopsis of Apocalyptic Montessa. So for our audience who hasn't read it and we're getting kind of this information, can you give us a little bit of a background for that story? Uh, yeah, um, Apocalyptic Montessa and Nuclear Lulu, A Tale of Atomic Love. Um, it starts out with Montessa, who is, uh, like Joe mentioned, a stripper, downtrodden, uh, has this guy that she lives with that doesn't care for her at all. And she she's walking home one night from the strip club, and her boyfriend's refusing to give her a ride. He's just kind of, he's a jerk. Meanwhile, Lulu is this uh, guy who's a truck driver, has been watching her for a while, he hits her over the head with a wrench and drags her into his truck and is going to murder her because he's a serial killer. He also has paranormal powers. That was the old powers. way of doing things. Yeah, he's a caveman. <laughs> he's not, not real good that's at talking, not real wife. good at finessing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how Joe caught his wife. Um, and, um, it's, and it turns out to be sort of a love story of redemption in a way. Um, and it was tough to write... I, I wanted to, well, it was a joy to write, but it was tough because I wanted to show uh, people that are absolutely so dark and what we would consider, you know, unsalvageable, and I wanted to find the humanity in them. Um, so I wanted to to get these people and have them, and, and they they do some gruesome things. It's quite a bloody book. I think, didn't you say you had to put that down at some point, Tim, when you were reading it? <laughs> I think. Yeah, it was like, and the funny thing, it was like 60-some <laughs> percent in when I was like, and I, I can't I can't reveal why because it's a spoiler, but yeah, it was really hard for me to relate with um, the main characters. But I will add that 
<laughs> when I picked it back up, it was literally like two pages later that I was then hooked and loved the ending. So, yeah, there you go. Oh, I think I know what scene you're talking about. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it was right after the gas station. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That was the shift for her, and, and I was afraid I was going to lose her at that point. But it didn't ha- But it didn't happen. She was still there. She still had the humanity there, even though she had just kind of leapt off a cliff at that point, I think. But um, yeah, so that's that's Apocalyptic Montessa, and it's it's doing well. It won the uh, the Reddit 2013 Stabby Award for Best Short Fiction of 2013. So so I'm excited. But it was tough to take these these people that really have no redemptive qualities, you know, in, in a way. But their love for each other was so. I mean, I think they loved each other the best that they could. I think that Lou was trying to help her the best that he could. It just wasn't the best way to go about it. But I think there was genuine care there. And it, it makes me realize that, you know, people care in different ways. You know, um, that's not my mode of caring. I wouldn't wouldn't want to do that. But, but, but yeah, so that was their antiheroes. Okay, I want to do it a little bit. No. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we should uh, probably start to wrap it up. Was there anything um, that someone wanted to mention before we take off? The only thing I would like to say is just uh, maybe that you can see the quality of of writers here now that Tim Markwitz and I are selecting for Ragnarok, and we couldn't be happier to have this, these kind of people working for us. And that's what Absolutely. we're looking for is – yeah, that they're really invested in their stories. They're willing to go out there and promote themselves, and it really uh, makes an impact. So, if you you know readers out there who are listening to this should check out RagnarokPub.com. Haha, check us out. We're doing good stuff. Dark genre fiction, more grim dark. Yes, and and I'm sorry that I couldn't get the entire Ragnarok team on here. We had to drop Melanie. Uh, how do you say her last name? Metters. Metters. Really sorry we had to drop her, and um, we just didn't like her. Really, she kind of brought some attitude to. Yeah, she's she's she sucks. Hate <laughs> her. <laughs> and and you know and Kenny oh. and uh, you know there's there's more people on the team, and so to those that are on the team that weren't on. Sorry, try and get you on another time. But you know, to our audience, yeah, to our audience, you know, I have extreme appreciation for Ragnarok publications and what they've done, what I've read so far. So it's it's awesome that we had so much to so much in common to talk about. But I also just really wanted to bring this team on to say, you know, you guys should be checking these people out because uh, I think you'll be really impressed. Thanks, man. Yeah, definitely. Thank it's you. A good band. <laughs> good band. Encore. Yeah. yeah, we rock out. We we probably shouldn't tell Tim that we're breaking up now, <laughs> right before his book comes out. <laughs> uh, where's my heroin? <laughs> <laughs> Don't go that route, man. It's not worth it. <laughs> Have you seen him? It can't make things worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh poor guy okay folks well everybody say goodbye thanks folks for listening um, go check out ragnarokpub.com and uh, there's wonderful profiles on all the authors here thanks for having us Tim yeah, yeah it's thank a pleasure you. thank you 
visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>